Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We've got some interesting education-themed stories to talk about on Today in Ohio. It's the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And Laura, you're up first with the third-grade reading guarantee, which was one of the hallmarks of the John Kasich education plan back when he was governor. Some saw it as a gimmick. Others are tools to push schools harder. Is it about to die in Ohio? Maybe. The requirement has been on hold since the pandemic. Now legislators want to make it permanent. They've tried to do this before, but the idea kind of died in the Senate. So this is in the House's version of the two-year state budget. Nix is the mandate that a kid repeat third grade. And then there's a separate bipartisan standalone bill called House Bill 117 by Gail Manning, a North Ridgeville Republican, and Phil Robinson, a Solon Democrat, that says the same thing. And their argument is basically that the guarantee is not improving test scores, and that is really hard on kids to have to repeat a grade. They have some statistics that reading proficiency levels in the fourth grade haven't meaningfully improved since the 2013-2014 school year when the retention requirement began. Ohio's reading scores on a national assessment of educational progress prior to the pandemic show that scores have been about stagnant since 2002. The thing is, reading this, it's, the point is not just to improve text scores, although that would be very nice. It's to make sure that every kid eventually gets a passing score. And if kids can't read proficiently in the third grade, they are going to have a much harder time with the rest of school because every subject requires reading. And you really need that base level to, you know, to mature and have success in school and life. But there were two parts of this that did raise questions. One, they were only held back once. So if they were held back in third grade for one time and they still couldn't read, they moved on, which seemed odd because that means there wasn't a guarantee. And two, there were educators who thought this was a simplistic hammer down kind of strategy instead of being thoughtful about having multiple strategies to help different kids with different needs learn to read. They just picked up a big hammer and said, get them reading or hold them back, which I don't think was that effective. Did we see reading scores rise precipitously in the years no. after this? I mean, no, that's the it, whole point. Right. No. So, I mean, it's it's really about supporting the educators. And Mike DeWine is trying, as we've talked about previously, he's trying to change the reading curriculum to have a different philosophy of how you teach reading, focusing more on phonics. 
that, that seems a more reading. thoughtful approach than just saying, you know, get them through third grade or hold them back and, and it's up to you. Well, so, the science of reading is still a separate bill that could that could pass regardless of whether this passes. And I think the idea is, I mean, I don't want legislators telling school districts how they need to teach their kids. They're already doing that way too much. So I think that hammer was like, okay, so you know your kids, you figure out which programs are going to work best with them. And the requirement that if they don't pass the guarantee, they have to get special attention and, and you know, focus learning and different programs, that's still going to be a requirement. And you know that, I mean, school districts they are very worried about test scores and very worried about these kids passing. And so they take a test in the fall of third grade. The The real test isn't until the spring. But if they have kids that look like they might not pass, those kids get intensive instruction. They can get it during the school day. They can get it after the school day. They really want to address that. I know several kids that didn't read well with the fun, uh, what do they call it? The, the, the program that they have in the Rocky River schools, they tried a different Wilson learning plan. So I think... Schools do know best, you know, what else to try. I don't want legislators to legislate anymore, but there is research in Florida, Indiana, and Mississippi that tracks students that if they are held back and repeat third grade, they do have overall better academic outcomes in the long term. Well, I'm never going to forget the story you did as part of a greater Cleveland where you were in a classroom with kids roughly that age, I think, and they couldn't read. I mean, it was heartbreaking as you narrated it with the kids trying to guess what the words were with no idea what they were doing. Yeah, I know. And actually, that was an after school program where, you know, there were workers who were trying to help kids through their homework. It was absolutely painful. And they were trying to do an exercise where they had to, you know, pick up uh, a word and read it and then do what it says. And it was impossible to, uh, it was just, ugh heartbreaking. And these were children in third and fourth grade who were completely illiterate. And, and you know, the story was really contemplating, like, why aren't there enough supports to, to help these kids overcome those hurdles? Which is what it's about. When you have a kid that's reading challenged, they have special needs. They're often individualized. And unless you provide the school with the resources to address that, having a hammer that says hold the kid back is not going to make a difference well, in how the kid can read. And that's what some people pointed out, right? That the issue should not be, you know, can they read in third grade? The issue should be universal access to high quality early childhood education because when kindergartners come in to school and they don't know their letters, they have a really hard time catching up. So, I mean, soapbox time. This goes back to uh, universal childcare, right? If we, everybody had high quality childcare, they would come on, on much more even footing and they would be ready to learn to read in kindergarten. As it is, you have kids in kindergarten that come in reading and kids that don't know what a letter is. So those poor teachers have a really difficult task of trying to teach all the kids and bring them up to a point that by the end of the year, they, they have their sight words that they know. I do think it's interesting that the governor has put a focus on this. Whether you agree with the phonics approach or not. He is focusing on having that discussion. And so far, I, I don't believe it's a mandate. It's an inducement. And if it passes, we'll have to see how it works. Interesting development. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Ohio teacher retirement system has been in conflict for a few years with a lot of retired teachers upset with the board running the thing, the huge bonuses paid to the investment advisors, and the lack of regular cost of living increases. 
Is Governor Mike DeWine now adding to the conflict with his board choice? Lisa. I think that remains to be seen. But uh, on Friday, uh, Governor DeWine asked his appointee, Wade Steen, to resign from the uh, State Teachers Retirement Services Board. Um, he Steen was a former Cuyahoga County fiscal officer. He served seven years on the board, and he is one of six so-called reform-minded members on the 11-person board. So these reformers are calling to challenge investment decisions made by their investment arm and the big staff bonuses. They're calling for more transparency on how bonuses and, and investment decisions work. And they're also upset about austerity measures because there's either been no or low cost of living increases from 2017 to 2022. And as we know, in August, the board will vote on more than $11 million in bonuses to go to 91 STRS investment department staff, while there's currently no vote for cost of living for retirees. But they do say that their board is conferring with an actuary to see if they can even afford a cost of living increase. If they can, that would start July 1st. But uh, DeWine has appointed a man from Dublin, G. Brent Bishop. We don't know much about him yet. He will serve the unexpired term, which expires in September of next year. And at the same time, a Berea school teacher, Pat Davidson, defeated incumbent board member Arthur Land. Uh, Davidson was supported by the Ohio Federation of Teachers, and he promises to be a reformer as well. Well, and the teachers get to elect most of the, the board members, mm -hmm. and they've been voting for reformers because they're sick of it. And if Steed has stayed, then the reformers would outnumber the non-reformers. So it's interesting that on the eve of that happening, mm -hmm. DeWine asks for his resignation. He refuses, so they yanked him. On the other hand, the governor's office says he didn't show up for three recent meetings. He only right. partially attended three others. So he kind of gave them a good reason to kick them off. You've got to be present if you want to make a difference, right? Especially in these times when there's been so much, you know, flap over these huge bonuses and, and the lack of cost of living increases. So yeah, it's a crucial time. Yeah, You said before the podcast, the big question is, will his appointee vote with the reformers or will he mm -hmm. vote to keep the status quo? If it's a status mm -hmm. quo vote, then it will feel like DeWine is trying to keep the investment advisors happy, which would be a shame because the teachers should be able to say it'll take another election cycle for the teachers to completely take over the board from those who are the traditionalists. Interesting timing, interesting story. Laura actually covered Wade for a few years when she was the Cuyahoga County government reporter and remembers him with with warm feelings, right? Well, I, I felt like he was a reformer and knew what, how, like how to handle that office professionally. He took he was the first fiscal officer under Ed Fitzgerald, took over from Frank Russo, um, as well as the recorder and the treasurer, and and definitely brought professionalism to the office. I also remember as a very like dapper, like suit and tie and like pocket square kind of guy, but I haven't talked to him in years. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Is Cleveland going to run out of cops with hundreds of police leaving for various reasons, including retirement in recent years? How many recruits are in the latest police academy? And Layla, is this a, a bona fide crisis at this point? It does sound like it could be. Honestly, there are only nine, nine 
That's staggeringly low when you compare it to the 87 who graduated from the academy in 2000. It's the smallest class in 25 years, and it leaves the city short 200 officers from their budgeted number of 1,498. Reporter Olivia Mitchell tells us that 20 years ago, the city had more applicants than they had room for in the academy. They had to turn people away. In 2000, they had 101 students in the academy and 87 graduated, but the numbers have just been plummeting since then. Police told Olivia that the dwindling numbers and the ranks means more stress on the job, mandatory overtime, and burnout that can lead to errors in judgment. And it's just really hard to recruit young people to this profession, it seems. The city has loosened up its dress code for officers so they can wear beards and ball caps and have tattoos, but that's really not enough. A survey from the International Association of Chiefs of Police showed that the long hiring process often contributes to the low number of applicants. And also a lot of young people don't want to work long hours and have all that mandatory overtime or face childcare challenges. And one expert told Olivia that prospective recruits are also turned off by the image police officers have developed after police use of force cases and the use of body cams and cell phones have really made that harder because, well, they have captured evidence of officers abusing citizens. And he says people don't want to be part of an organization that's been vilified by their communities. And there were arguments made in this story that society has to change to adopt a better attitude about cops if we expect people to want to join the police force. Although I kind of take issue with that because society isn't responsible for the bad image of cops. The officers who abuse citizens have brought shame to their profession and, and the police unions that stand by those abusive officers and fight for their jobs afterward have, have brought shame to them. And so had the department leaders who let these things happen for decades without accountability. I mean, really the only way to improve the public's view of police is for police to do better. And so that's the moment we're in right now struggling with that. There, there are a couple, couple things. There are a lot of cities are dealing with this, although I don't know that any are dealing with it to this extent. We're going to explore that. Uh, there was also the where, the where the voters brought in in 2021 the civilian control of discipline. There were those who predicted no one will want to be a cop now. So I'm hearing from them left and right saying, see, see, nobody wants to be a police with the ridiculous civilian control. I don't know if that's true or not, but... It does appear at this rate, they will not be able to field an adequate police force. I mean, you can argue about what numbers they actually need to keep the city safe. But if you're losing hundreds a year and you're only bringing in nine per class, they're in big trouble. I don't know what the alternative is. What do you do? Do you just all, you become East Cleveland where there's not enough, not enough people on the street and and bedlam results? I don't know. They've tried a number of recruitment tools. They've been advertising on RTA buses and billboards, and the city has pushed this police explorer program to people between 14 and 20 years old who are trying to break into law enforcement, and they're trying to give this hands-on training to those young people to see if they might catch fire and and spark a, a passion for joining the division. But I don't know how how successful that's been. How how big are those classes? How well are they pushing those? How often do they visit schools? I mean, I thought Marty Flask, the former law director in chief, uh, had a good idea. He he thinks that the department should engage officers in the recruitment process and reward them with money or comp time for the recruits that they bring in. I think that's a good idea. It works for us. <laughs> 
I do think you're right about the police unions because the police unions so staunchly defend people who clearly did bad things and it's over the top with their public statements. It does add to the public image for people and who wants to be part of that? Who yes. wants to be part of something that is that can easily be portrayed as is thugging being thugs in the neighborhoods and I and, think this problem is completely about the reputation of police departments and police officers and not not at all about the civilian oversight because good people who would become good cops don't care about oversight because they will never be tied up in those kinds of problems where they but, need to be uh, you know taken to task for their actions it has everything to do with the reputation of policing and the reputation of departments. But it's not. But in some ways, it's really unfair because let's face it: the huge majority of police officers are not abusing the citizenry. Right. So mm-hmm. you've allowed a, a, a group of bad actors to tarnish the whole department. Well, when and you that, say you've allowed, what do you mean? The the the, the department has allowed. They, I think they need to get out there. And show the community that most of their officers are there. And that's on them. That's service. not on anyone else but the department to change the way the public perceives them. Yeah, it's no not idea. on the media. That's not our role. No, no, we're not. We're not propagandists. Although right. some accuse us of that. All right, it's. A, <laughs> I, we're going to be exploring this because if this continues for a couple of years, I don't know how you keep the streets safe. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Dave Yost is fighting to enforce the heartbeat abortion bill while it rolls through the courts, and he has enlisted his counterparts in a whole lot of states for support. Laura, this is very common. These attorneys general all hang together. How many states well, have filed briefs? at least filed when they're briefs? in the same party, right? <laughs> yeah. How many states have filed briefs to support him with the Ohio Supreme Court? 18, and they all signed on to the same amicus brief led by Mississippi. So they're all arguing the same thing. Uh, this is aren't you just loving Ohio being in this list? Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Iowa, Kentucky, Missouri, Louisiana, Montana, Nebraska, South Carolina, South Dakota, Texas, Utah, and West Virginia. So these states argue that abortion clinics don't have the standing to even file this lawsuit against the heartbeat bill and the ban because they don't have a close relationship with the women who are receiving abortions. The brief states that abortion providers don't even know the women. They commonly seek to sue on behalf of unknown women who may in this future come to them seeking abortions. And the women that they do know, the women's relationship with abortion providers is usually brief, shallow, and transactional just often just minutes long. So they're saying you don't have the standing to bring this lawsuit in the first place. So we shouldn't even be having this conversation. Yeah. Which is, which is a technical argument. Mm-hmm. I, I would have thought the argument would be that, look, the law's passed. It, it's a legitimate law. It's being challenged, but while it's being challenged, the law should 
should be enforced, which you could argue. I mean, the legislature passed it. It's allowed by the U.S. Supreme Court. And if it's ultimately overturned, then we could stop. But the idea that an abortion clinic doesn't have standing, how, how can that even be? I mean, that's their argument, right? So, yeah, it's interesting that and I guess for a long time, while it was Roe versus Wade was still standing, you couldn't argue these kind of technical um, standing regular kind of issues. But now that it's up to states, then that's what they can can base it on. So, you know, they talked about facial challenges, like something that's illegal or unconstitutional on its face. So as we know, it's very complicated what happened with abortion last year when Roe versus Wade was overturned. Then, you know, the heartbeat bill went into effect, but then it was stayed with this injunction uh, in September. So right now you can get an abortion in Ohio up to about 22 weeks. And then they're trying to get it on the ballot for abortion rights in the fall where the Republicans are pushing back. I mean, I I, I assume it's a tough place to be and, you know, an abortion provider right now. But I wonder how many of these states and the amicus brief have similar laws. I mean, I don't know of any other six week abortion bans in the state or in the country. Oh, Florida. Florida just Oh, did. that's right. Florida's one. But, mm-hmm. but here's the other thing. Who in Ohio cares what t- Tennessee has to say? The hell mm-hmm. with these guys. I mean, if I were on the Supreme Court, I'd be like, this is an Ohio issue. Why should I care what Mississippi thinks? Is that like the gold standard of judicial thinking? It's bizarre. <laughs> but, you know, how many times has Yost and his, and his predecessors, Mike DeWine, joined these kinds of things elsewhere. It's like this little club. Let's all try and flex our muscles and try and influence it. It's going to come down to the legal argument, or it's going to come down to our politicized Ohio Supreme Court, which won't base it on law, but it'll base it on politics. Who knows? You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland is spending a couple of million dollars of its rescue plan money to help some people in need. Layla, who are the targets for this round of help? Well, the proposal is to set aside these $2 million in ARPA cash for people who need help paying their utility bills, specifically customers of Cleveland Public Power and the Cleveland Water Department. There's there's no income threshold to apply, and there's no limit on how much you have to owe the utility or how much you do owe the utility. The, the debt just can't be older than March 2020, and no commercial customers can apply these. This is only for residential. So they're saying it's a win-win. It helps make the utilities whole. It helps folks who slid behind on their bills during the financial hardships of the pandemic. They're hoping to help 1,200 households who owe money to Cleveland Public Power and 1,400 households who owe money to Cleveland Water. City Council originally wanted $8 million at least to be set aside for this utility amnesty program, but they eventually reached a compromise with Mayor Justin Bibb over a variety of ARPA proposals, and this was one that got whittled down in that compromise. But if I'm a Cleveland Water customer outside of Cleveland who needs help, I don't get it. Well, it. Uh, my reading of this is that you can apply for this. It appears that you don't have to be a Cleveland resident to apply for the amnesty because, I mean, let's be honest, this is more about making the utilities whole than anything else. If it were, I, I think if it were only about helping residents who were being on, behind on their bills, they wouldn't limit it to CPP. I think they'd also help First Energy customers who are in arrears. So it it makes sense that they would <laughs> offer it too. <laughs> so this is a way of using rescue dollars for enterprise funds, which are supposed to be wholly supported by the user fees. Well, this is my cynical read on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty dastardly, but in some ways wise. It props up your utilities with the federal yeah. dollars. 
But it would feel a little bit unfair if the Cleveland Water customers in Cleveland got the benefit, but the Cleveland Water customers elsewhere did not. Right. So it sounds like at least they're spreading some of that love. You're listening to Today in Ohio. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, and Ohio, including Cleveland, has a sizable population. Reporter Zachary Smith breaks it down. Laura, what are the numbers? So about 2.5% of Ohio's population identifies as Asian. So that's about 220,000 people of Asian descent who live here. And that's from estimates from the Census Bureau. So the Columbus suburb of Dublin, which is a really nice place, has the largest percentage of Asian people in any Ohio city, 19.6%, followed by Pepper Pike and the Cincinnati suburb of Mason. So they're at 14.1%. Dublin also has the highest percentage of people from India. The largest share of Chinese residents can be found in Oxford, home to my alma mater, Miami University, at 6.9%. Brooklyn, in the Cleveland area, has the highest percentage of Vietnamese people at 2.9%. And within the city of Cleveland itself, obviously, we have Asiatown, and the highest share of any Asian population is Chinese. That's at 0.8%. 8% of the population. And then there's a, a group called Other Asian, which doesn't check a specific box, and Indian at 0.5%. So the largest Asian population in the United States is Chinese, which I think you would probably get. Uh, residents of Pacific Islander descent make up less than 1% of the population in every major place in Ohio. But there's still a lot of businesses that are owned by by Asian and Pacific Islanders. And this Heritage Month was established in 1978. There was a joint congressional resolution that started as a 10-day kind of week and a half as a week. And that was coinciding with the first um, arrival of Japanese immigrants to the United States and the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad in May 1869, which was primarily built by Chinese workers. I, I didn't know that the biggest percentage of the Asian population in Cleveland was from China, which is interesting. It must be a bit of a challenge for them because of how hostile the United States and China have become to each other and the, the looming Taiwan question. I, they must feel in, like they're in a little bit of a precarious position being in this country, especially with the Republican Party trying to charge up that animus. Well, I think ever since COVID started, you know, there's been a rising, probably more vocal um, hate groups against Asian people. And yeah, I don't, I mean, we have a long history in this country of discriminating against people of Asian descent. I mean, look at World War II with the internment camps for Japanese. Yeah, but I right now, things are pretty dicey. I think with something, knowing this now, I think it's something we'll have to pay more attention to. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Lisa, this is tough because it's a visual question and we don't have the visuals. The Browns have released the five finalists in a contest to choose the new dog logo for the team. Is it me or do those dogs look like they need some anger management therapy? Yeah, they all look pretty mean, but that's kind of what we want from a logo, I would think. I don't know. But there are five finalists that were announced yesterday for the new Browns dog logo. These designs were chosen from those submitted by fans back in April. And then apparently in March, I missed this, there was a playoff, like a bracket style playoff vote for the dog breed that should, you know, represent the Cleveland Bounds. And they chose the Mastiff, which is like one of the largest dogs ever, you know, bred. So out of these five logos. Uh, They're all with the orange and brown and black, you know, color scheme, but there are two of them that are in profile. Three of them are facing head on. 
four of them are wearing spiked collars and all but one of them are showing their teeth. Um, voting begins tomorrow for uh, people who want to vote on their favorite logo. Um, and then voting will end in early June. And after they choose, after they ad- I'm sorry, after voting starts tomorrow, then on Thursday, the NFL schedule will be released. So I looked at them and, and there's, you know, there's a, there's a picture on Twitter and there's like five of them and they're arranged like a die would be arranged, you know, the five. I like the one in the lower left corner, the one that's not showing its teeth. I think that's my favorite one. So I guess you just don't use a golden retriever for this kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) No poodles, no chihuahuas. It's got to be a snarling dog. Um, I think they they voted and they decided the, it should be like a mastiff, right? Yeah. That's what what they said. Yeah. 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 So you're, you're not going to get, yeah, like a little teacup kind of dog. And I'm actually yeah. looking. I found this old button at an estate sale, a doghouse Cleveland Browns button, and it's with the old municipal stadium. So that's how old the button is. And it's actually like a smiling bulldog wearing a Cleveland Browns jersey. So <laughs> a more, a more, you know, friendlier logo back then. It, it would have been interesting to have one choice that didn't look like it wanted to thrash the mailman. You know, it's just, they're so, <laughs> so angry looking, but it'll be interesting to see who other people pick the one you pick, the one without the teeth. It's today in Ohio. We were surprised last month to hear that the Nautica Queen is making way for a new cruise ship on Cleveland's lakefront, Lady Caroline. Photographer Dave Pekowitz got inside it Monday. Layla, is there anything remarkable? Well, I'll tell you what, the Nautica Queen looks like a dump next to Lady Caroline. <laughs> and and that new boat still needs about $250,000 in renovation. So I assume it's going to be exquisite by the time it's done. The Lady Caroline arrived Monday after a 22-day trip from New York through the St. Lawrence Seaway, and it will begin these renovations soon. The ship is 120 feet and has 15,000 square feet of space on board. It has four decks including three that are climate controlled and an open air sky deck that'll feature a bar, a DJ, and beautiful views of the lake, of course. And this should go into service by mid-June. The ship belongs to Jacobs Entertainment. It's it's named after CEO Jeff Jacobs' daughter, Caroline Jacobs. She was actually the one who had the honor of christening the ship at the ceremony Monday. Well, hopefully by the time it goes into service, the weather will be accommodating. If it had gone into service in April, probably wouldn't have been able to take people out about half the days. Dave's pictures are online on cleveland.com. Check them out. It's today in Ohio. That's a wrap for a Tuesday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thank you for listening. We'll be back Wednesday. <laughs>